Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about fathers and sons. And by inappropriate, I mean I'm going to tell it from the perspective of a 1960s Swedish art house film. Hence the title, Papa Talked to Me. But first, you can hear inappropriate conversations on Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to your favorite shows directly from your iPhone, Android phone, Kindle Fire, and more. And by favorite shows, for me, I mean programs I've talked about before on inappropriate conversations. Take him with you. Game Night Guys. Greetings from Nowhere. The JV Club. Masters of None. And more. It's possible for me to listen to these shows in more than one way, and that provides a tremendous amount of flexibility. You see, with the Stitcher app, you don't lose the sound if you turn on a show and then multitask in other applications like Facebook or Twitter or something else. Or if I'm driving down the road and I need to quickly move from what might be playing on my radio or on my Zune player plugged into my car speakers... I can use Stitcher as a way of just using my phone when I'm inside a store or you know, moving between building and building during a work break or something of that nature. So Stitcher is part of a powerful arsenal in the way that I listen to podcasts. This will be a nostalgia show, and I think it's going to be the first time I've told a college story that didn't require an explicit language tag. I think that I've mentioned Tales from the Dorm Room before in a way that I hope conveys that the only animal house in campus wasn't just a uh, campus life experience from the fraternity sorority system, that you could live in an apartment complex with a close-knit enough people that those same kinds of crazy stories and, and camaraderie would develop. And it certainly worked that way for me in this Midwestern dormitory setting. But I'll get there in just a minute. The first thing I want to do is sort of say that you know, I've hit this point in my relationship within my family where both of my kids are now old enough that almost all the tales can be told. And that's something that's kind of important because inside our family dynamic, we've always had a sense that it was important to do some sort of self-censoring, that there was a point in time where it wasn't appropriate to even mention the name V8 Nate, much less tell any stories related to things that happened back then. And to be honest, in conversation with my kids, I've still held back on some of those stories. The podcast, of course, changes everything. And I'll get to that time capsule idea here in just a second. But now that the youngest one is not going to be a teenager anymore, I'm literally, by the time this is posted, we may be talking about me not having any teenage children. That kind of relieves the burden of saying, hey, you know, you almost need to bring up some of these college stories, because if you don't bring them up, then you have information from your own personal past experience that they may be encountering for the first time without anybody having provided any background. There's no history that's been told there. And even though many of these college stories could not even remotely qualify for a moniker like sacred history, it's still important to share. My father shared, I'll tell one or two of his stories, and did so at a time when my brother was going to college. So I was, you know, probably even still in junior high school when I was overhearing some of these things for the first time. If anything, we're a little bit further behind. I'd be very worried about that if either one of my children were pledging to the fraternity sorority system. But because of the nature of where we live and the commuter aspect of their college experience, 
they really don't have that dormitory type environment. And for a while, we were concerned that that might be an issue. I mean, my understanding of how to study and how to collaborate on group projects with other students was really related to being on a walking campus and living inside the dormitory system. But then my experience was very different. I was way more than an hour away from home at any given time and didn't have a car for the first year or two. So you really had to function inside the campus environment in a walking sort of a way. But I do wonder if my kids are, for better or worse, probably for better, being deprived of their own personal V8 Nate type experiences. And I will tell one of those stories from my junior year. See, in the past in inappropriate conversations, I've talked about my freshman year, episodes 52 and 112, being specific to the character that I've mentioned here a couple of times in V8 Nate. And I realized that I'd actually told a sophomore year story early, early on in episode 26, the one called Most Likely To and Other Work Stories. Really, the key element of that work story was a college story from my sophomore year. But now perhaps the time has come to, to go one year up further and, and tell a junior year story and to do so from a comic perspective. And the reason that I'm doing it is because I feel like in the father-son relationship, my son and I could be closer than we are. And I would say, of course, the same thing about my father. I think my father died too young on his 60th birthday. And there are things that in the last decade or so we would have shared with each other now that I'm older and experiencing things you know, that you know, would have been more in his line of thought. He was perhaps ready to speak with an adult child more comfortably than with a teenager or with somebody who was younger than that. And we just never got to that age where I was the right age at the same time that he was alive. And it bothers me to this day. And I think to some degree, I look with my relationship with my son and say, hey, you know what? We actually could have been closer. He has always been a challenge for me to get into a good heart-to-heart -heart conversation if you aren't in a captive audience situation. If you're in a major life event, like you're waiting between a wedding and a reception, you might get a chance to talk because you're not going anywhere. The birds and the bees conversation, as a matter of fact, happened kind of in a, in a car driving down the road. The only way that I could get the quality time I needed to work through my discomfort, to, to talk through some of those issues, was, in this case, the happenstance of us having to make a more than one-hour trip to pick up something for a church group. A member of our church had asked me to buy some rainbow ribbon for her, and I found some at our local store, but I didn't find enough. So I had to call around and find if there was another location of the same chain that had the same exact ribbon and how many they had. And we located one that was about an hour and 20 minutes away that had enough. And they were going to hold it for me. So I needed to make this drive on a wintry day where there's a lot of snow. In fact, the further north we went, the more snow we encountered. And you, you knew this was going to turn into be a three or four hour day just between driving up there, buying what we needed to buy, driving back. And the incentive for my son was that that particular store was close to one of the Krispy Kreme donut stores that you could actually see the donuts being made. You know, a lot of Krispy Kreme donuts... Uh, especially 10 years ago when they were pretty pretty much at their height of popularity, were just on sale in places like gas stations, grocery stores, convenience stores. But as a chain, that donut shop did have locations where there was the same storefront where you could buy donuts, you could buy coffee, you could sit and eat. But they also had a large glass sort of area or plexiglass area where you could see the process of the donuts being made. And one of the things that would happen if you walked into the store at the right time is you could get a glazed donut right off the rack, just free of charge to say, hey, here's what they taste like before we've, you know, put them in a truck and shipped them to a store near you. 
And not only did both my son and I truthfully enjoy the process of watching that assembly line happen, watching a, a freshly you know, cooked donut going through the glazed car wash, so to speak, you know, all that sort of process. But you know, he, and he liked the donuts too. So the incentive for him was we're going to go up there, we're going to get some donuts. The incentive for me was I was going to help this friend out and get the rest of the yarn she needed to, to make things she was making for some church group. But you have this period of time where before you get to the part of the roads where the roads are too tricky, because when we got to the parking lot of that store, they had done snow removal against the parking lot and created a wall of ice and snow and slush that was eight feet high. In fact, I intentionally parked more than eight feet away from that wall. Because even though I had confidence and the professionalism and expertise of the snow removal people seemed like there'd be way too much liability risk if there was any reason to think or fear that that snow wall might fall on your car, I wasn't going to take any chances either. So for at least an hour on the ride up and an hour on the ride back, we had time to speak uninterruptedly about very adult ideas. And of course, the only challenge is when you're trying to explain the difference between terms like flaccid and erect you really can't do it just driving down the road, especially not with two hands on the wheel. But I was able to like use an index finger and, and demonstrate sort of the, the difference that I was talking about. And then give us a chance to talk about why the human body or the human male body responds in that way and what it means and so forth. And I hit the whole birds and bees conversation. But it was hard to get into that kind of serious face-to-face -face talk without having a captive audience. I think both my wife and I have determined over the years that the best captive audience situation available to us is a long car trip <laughs> because even in a wedding reception or you know, wait in the waiting room for somebody who's having a, a surgery or something where you might not be going anywhere, you still aren't stuck side by side with each other. Uh, somebody could wander off. My son could get uncomfortable and decide that it's time to go to the restroom or to go to the concession stand and get a drink or something. But in, in the car, you're really stuck together. I never had that issue with my dad. When he would get into what I would consider a full-on storytelling mode, I wasn't going anywhere. Because for one thing, a lot of the times, as maybe the third youngest kid in the family, the stories weren't being directed at me. I was overhearing. I was an observer. This tapped in, perhaps, to my interest in journalism when I was in college age, uh, being somebody who's chronicling. Um, Matthew, from the the gospel perspective seems to be somebody who's trying to tell an historical story and put it into the context of everything that happened before that sort of mentality. So almost eavesdropping, although eavesdropping in a conversation that you've been invited to and that you're perfectly welcome to hear. One of my dad's stories that I tell perhaps more often than any other was when he was first moving away from the state that he grew up in two, three, four states north to a completely different environment, a large metropolitan area, a city he hadn't lived in before, going from uh, his undergraduate degree, living fairly close to home, to his postgraduate studies, you know, again, living, you know, three, four states north. First night in town, or what we're going to call the first night in town, dad steps into a bar, and he'd never been there before. He's uh, finally comfortable enough with moving in or where he was setting up that it was time to get a drink and relax. So the bar that he walks into was one of those that clearly has some regulars to it. So it doesn't have just maybe a few chairs for people to sit out in the open space. But really, the, the key customer service aspect of this bar is people on stools sitting at the bar interacting with the bartender. And when my dad got up to sat down, he sat down next to a man who looked like a regular in every sense of the word. He didn't just look like he'd been in that bar for many years. It looked like maybe it had been many years since he walked in that particular day. He was a fixture in every conceivable way. 
And the bartending staff was nowhere to be seen. They were back in the in the back room in the kitchen area, probably bringing up more supplies, bringing up more clean glasses. And the man sitting next to my dad asked him what he was going to order. And my dad didn't really have an agenda. You know, we hadn't created a drinking game plan, but he said, I don't know, probably a martini. And tapped my dad on the arm and he says, you want to get this one shaken, not stirred. Trust me, buddy. Shaken, not stirred. So the bartender comes out. Well, maybe not the most attractive woman in the world. Certainly a very large-breasted, well-endowed woman. Uh, attractive enough as well. And my dad orders a uh, just a regular vodka martini, shaken. The woman looks at my dad, looks at the man sitting next to him, and says to the man sitting next to my father, one more time, buddy, and you're out of here. <laughs> and of course, you know, perhaps my little sister, hearing the same story, would not understand the concept. But I was just old enough to get what it might mean if a very large, well-endowed female bartender was shaking a martini and doing it in the proper manner. It would create the sort of motion that perhaps the man who'd been in the bar as a regular for years had come to enjoy as his nightly entertainment. Perhaps he, uh, among other things, in addition to enjoying his alcoholic beverages, would come in each night and secretly hope that somebody besides him would order a martini and, for God's sake, shaken, not stirred. There were other stories that my father would tell, and some of them I vaguely remember, again, being young enough that I might not understand the concept. I have this recollection of somebody falling off a roof, and the, the context of the person falling off the roof being hilarious, because it's the nature of comedy. If you fall off a roof and hurt yourself and you're in a wheelchair from now on, I don't know if that story ever gets funny. But in this case, it was somebody who was falling off a roof after perhaps being told that it, he shouldn't. Maybe it was too icy. Maybe it was too, I don't know. But being unharmed by the experience, it was, it was hilariously funny. And it's stories like this that I just don't have. I don't have any sort of time capsule element. Well, just this week, I decided that in the course of a dinner conversation, that maybe it made sense. And of course, for me to tell this story at dinner you know, is a completely inappropriate, but I went there. That perhaps it was time that pe kids were old enough to hear one other story because my son is now ready to consider no longer being a, a true commuter from home to college, but moving to an apartment either close to the campus or ha kind of halfway between where we live now and the campus and two or three friends going in. I was beginning to get that first sense of now I'm living with somebody. And it called to my mind. What has happened throughout the years, both with me personally and with others, where you're moving in to the dormitory room together, where you got two people living in very close quarters, and the person that you're rooming with, you already know. And you normally think, it's just human nature, think, hey, me and this person, we got a good relationship, we get along great, why in the world wouldn't we get along great as roommates? And something changes inside that paradigm of being in the same living space and where the expectations of friendship and getting along great are so high that the gap between the quality of the friendship and the quality of the experience of living with somebody, well, almost any married couple can tell you what that difference may be like, there's an adventure there. And the relationship would have to be unusually strong to overcome that. And lots of times these sort of you know roommates end up fighting and fighting with each other a lot. Me and the guy that I knew my sophomore year decided to room together we ended the year not talking to each other that much at all. It just seemed like the best way to avoid conflict. And my junior year, I moved in with somebody who was a year younger than me. We went to the same high school. And we had the advantage of actually not knowing much about each other, period. He was the person who um, owned the Joni Mitchell Blue album, where I really, for the first time, had been 
enticed to sit and listen to one cons- you know, consecutive stream of Joni Mitchell, one album end to end. And so I'll always be grateful to him for that. His music taste was very good, and my music taste improved being in his presence. But in lots of ways, his tastes were good. This guy was pretty darn close to brilliant. He uh, had a, an almost one-track mind when it came to studies. So when he could hone in on a topic, he was going to excel at mastering that topic. But at the same time, he was also the kind of guy that didn't get very angry. Uh, it was hard to ruffle his feathers. But his roommate his freshman year, the year before, when I was a sophomore, he knew how to ruffle Matt's feathers. And again, Jeff and Matt, I knew them both. Knew them both from high school. They were a year younger than me. But you know, I didn't know them well enough to understand kind of what the dynamic was. And I figured these guys are personality type, different enough. This just might work. And for at least half the year, that appeared to be the case. They were a model example of what two people rooming together who'd known each other for years could accomplish. That broke down midway through the second semester, however. And at some point, clearly they'd been aggravating each other for for weeks or at least for a lot of days in a row. At some point, some argument that they were having spilled into the restroom. So Matt is sitting in a stall reading a book. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, it was probably Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Idiot. There are not very many people I've known in my life who would read Dostoevsky in the bathroom, and Matt was one of them. And Jeff had used the, uh, used the urinal. And again, they're still arguing with each other, Matt doing number two, Jeff doing number one. And when Jeff was going over to wash his hands at the sink, he just decided, just for fun or just to be aggravating, to flick water across the bathroom, over the top of the stall, and into where Matt was sitting. Again, for some people, that would be a provocation that could lead to a fistfight by itself. But Matt is not the kind of person who gets upset easily. And he was able to disregard that. Normally, it wouldn't have bothered him a bit, except that Jeff was getting the book wet. Now, one of the problems with most paperback publications of Dostoevsky is that the print tends to be rather small. Because one of the ways you can maximize your profits by producing a paperback is to kind of set yourself a page limit and try to get the book in the fewest number of pages possible. And most of the time and most of the editions I've seen of any book, whether it's The Idiot, um, Brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment to me is one of the worst, shorter book, but the same issue, you end up with books that have a typeface that's probably just a little too small. And Matt did not want to take the risk of getting anything smudged or whatever on his paperback and started started calling him names. Started, they started arguing again because Matt was trying to protect his book. Well, Matt somehow, in the course of the argument, had enticed Jeff close enough to the stall that he was outside the stall door when they're you know, kind of yelling at each other. And Matt, seeking revenge, peed on Jeff's foot and the lower part of his leg. Now, this perhaps, again, may seem disproportionate act of revenge, water versus urine. And Jeff certainly took it that way because he was beyond outraged. But he was quiet. So the roommate who normally doesn't talk that much is sitting in a stall, and the roommate who normally has lots of words goes almost completely silent. In fact, for a few seconds, Matt left, lost complete track of where Jeff was until he saw a strange shadow creeping over the top of the stall. What Jeff had done is he'd dropped his pants, tiptoed into the stall immediately next to Matt's, climbed up the top of the toilet, and hung his butt over the stall to where his butt was hanging over the stall that Matt was in. And Jeff took a crap, which landed on Matt's foot. So you're Matt. You're sitting there, minding your own business. Of course, you peed on your roommate, but besides that, you're minding your own business. And all of a sudden, you look up just in time to see that 
coming down at you from near the ceiling, landing on your foot. What ensued was a legendary tale in this history of this particular dormitory floor. No, not the floor. In the history of the entire dormitory. Because these two guys, no pants on. Um, one has just taken a dump. The other has got the dump on his foot, chasing each other up and down the hallway, semi-naked and, you know, from a legal perspective, the wrong side semi, and fighting with each other, had to be separated. One of the bigger messes that I can remember, uh, really in any of my college years from that, you know, that living perspective of the maybe four years I lived in dormitories, that was by far the messiest story I have to tell. Well, I bring this story up at the dinner table. It's almost always good for a laugh. Of course, again, bringing this up at the dinner table, completely inappropriate, I'll grant. But in the course of laughing about it, kind of internalizing it, trying to figure out, well, where, where am I in this story, which is what you do. My son starts, you can tell his wheels are turning. And the question that we posed was, I wonder how warm that was when it hit Matt's foot. What was the temperature? You know, was, um, was this something that was, had it already become somewhat cold and solid? Or was this something that was, you know, in every way still sort of warm and loose? And just trying to, you know, imagine what Matt's perspective would have been at having been the recipient of this particular defecating insult. And my son, being very deeply into math, uh, further along in mathematics than I will ever be, begins literally calculating in his head. It was almost a goodwill hunting moment with him writing on an invisible, you know, grease board, doing mathematics, trying to come up with the answer and throwing questions back to us. What was the room temperature? I can't tell you how warm the feces was unless I know what, whether the room temperature was normal. I said, well, it was normal. My wife throws out what a typical room temperature is in Celsius. My daughter chimes in with the notion that the human body's temperature in the anus and the rectum is usually uh, almost one degree warmer than it is in the rest of the body. So if you're taking a temperature orally or by ear, you're going to get a lower number than if you take that same temperature rectally. So he factors in that. He's doing all the math because he's trying to figure out the distance that the turd would have traveled, the uh, calculate the speed that the turd would have gone, the room temperature, just to figure out through more than one calculation probably roughly what the temperature of the turd was when it hit Matt's foot. Now, this is a family story that I suspect we're going to be telling for quite some time. And it only comes from the idea that you're willing to go someplace inappropriate. Now, obviously, any college story of this sort is going to be inherently inappropriate. Seemingly almost every college story I've ever told that was set in a dormitory setting has been inappropriate, whether it's just you know, meeting a racist for the first time as a young adults and trying to factor maybe how well my parents had done at sheltering me from racist people or V8 Nate. But in this case, my son took the story and went with it and did some, and it was, it just created a great bonding moment around the humor of someone else's misfortune. I had other stories to tell. You know, it wasn't the first time that Jeff, for example, had been uh, out in, in a public setting. He wasn't outside in this case, but out in a public setting without enough clothes on. I believe it was Jeff. It might have been Matt, come to think of it. I'm not sure which one. I might have told the story wrong. One of them had been in a situation where they got out of the last movie of a movie theater, maybe even the midnight movie, on a night where you know the the weather was cold enough and there was maybe just enough condensation in the air that the windshield wiper was frozen over pretty good. And he knew that he'd no longer had windshield wiper fluid and whatever fluid he'd been using wasn't good enough to defrost anyway. He'd been disappointed by techniques short of turning the car on and waiting 10, 15 minutes for the ice to melt 
and somehow got in his idea that the right way to handle this situation was to drop his trousers, stand on his bumper, and pee on his windshield. And having the misfortune of using this particular ice removal technique at the exact moment when a police car drove into the parking lot just to make sure everything was okay. And, of course, everything was not okay. You end up with a, a ticket and an arrest. In fact, in, in modern America, you'd be lucky if you wouldn't be put on a sex offender list. Because even though there was a definite utilitarian um, mentality behind what you know, Matt or Jeff was trying to accomplish in that situation, it didn't much matter to the police officer. You were exposing yourself in public. So these type of stories, there's a value in telling them because, well, first off, it creates uh, – can create a warning saying, hey, you know what? There, there is a line of conduct that sort of happens in these college years where you need to find where you're – where your roadblock is and put it up and establish a checkpoint for yourself so you don't end up being one of those people who find yourself on the wrong end of the law for perhaps no better reason than just being a man in your early 20s. You know, to be honest with you, this behavior didn't strike most of us on the dorm floor as all that odd. I mean, two guys fighting with each other, two guys hitting each other with sticks, what have you, or, um, you know, throwing, I mean, just a couple of, you know, guys throwing crap at each other, in this case, unfortunately, literally. But it's kind of important to get that, get that idea out in the mix and to do it in such a way that it's as direct and personal as possible. Because in some ways, inappropriate conversations is a little bit like me putting something into a time capsule. There is, in my head, an acknowledgement that I have true stories to tell. And whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's specifically my kids, who perhaps one day will unearth these things and say, you know what, I wish I knew more about what dad thought about this. Well, hey, it's possible. Because downstairs somewhere in my collection of old audio cassette tapes that perhaps would not even play if I hooked my player back up and got my console system going again. You know, you wonder if I were to play one of these tapes, would it be the last time I ever got to play one of these tapes? And I would understand somebody saying, hey, Greg, why do you even have cassette tapes anymore? Well, there's two really good reasons. One is that Unlike the album, the cassette tape has never come anywhere near close to having any sort of collector's valuability. You know, there's, there's not really a market where you can go and even in a flea market setting, trade these things off or sell them off for more than even anywhere near a buck. A dollar a tape would be a shockingly high number. So there hasn't been a good way to sell them. And I'm, I'm loath to just throw them in the trash. It just seems wrong. The other reason, though, is that for many years, there were two or three or four songs, maybe even many dozen songs for a while there, that were not available. That while everyone else was kind of going nuts about how great iTunes was and how great just the MP3 market in general was, I was sitting out there saying, hey, you know what, there's a lot of stuff that you really can't just go on to iTunes and find. Copies of songs by Happy Flowers, like I Said I Want to Watch Cartoons. For the longest time, my only recording of that was on a cassette tape. And even that cassette tape was just recorded off of radio. It wasn't that I was even able to order and get in, in that mid-90s, late-90s time frame, a copy of the original Oof album by Happy Flowers. I have you know songs by The Residents that you don't necessarily, at least I at the time, didn't necessarily have either a vinyl copy of or certainly not a CD copy of. My copy, in fact, of The Residents' God in Three Persons is on tape not on album or on CD. So seemingly there's a value of keeping some of those cassette tapes around because one day I might just invest in the time or the technology to try to turn some of those cassette tape driven audio recordings into MP3 files. 
I just never got around to doing it. And in many of the cases, some of the songs that were on my list of things I wanted to find an MP3 file for, I have you know, subsequently been able to do so. Some of them available, again, via traditional means like iTunes or Zune. Some of them simply because you find them on YouTube and you're, you're able to enjoy the music again that way. And I secretly wonder whether some of the success of Napster, which I was never really a participant in at all, but to me, I never looked at Napster as a good way of getting free music that you otherwise could have bought at the store. Why would I have that mentality? I worked in a record store. Uh, but no, my thought was about Napster was, if this is a way of getting Giselle McKenzie singing French folk songs or Longines Symphonette albums on MP3 file, those two things alone are worth it. Now, I'll grant that that's sort of a, a almost silly side of the easy listening scale of my music-loving spectrum. And it explains why you wouldn't expect to necessarily find a, a whole landing page on iTunes of, of music that was originally produced on um, LP by Longines Symphonette. But I was much more likely to put my foot into that particular pool to look for those kinds of obscure recordings, whether they be easy listening or whether they just be the album produced on the uh, Yale University campus by some English you know, majors called um, Just Texting under the band name SZ. You know, rock and roll music inspired by the, the intellectual writings of Roland Barthes. I mean, that's sort of interesting stuff. If I'd ever gone to a place like Napster to look around, that's what I would have been looking for. But also in the basement, in the midst of that sort of collection of stuff, are other personal recordings. There may be something that was made as a, a copy of a tape made by my brothers and sisters and I when we were very little, singing Christmas songs and Christmas carols to put a cassette in the mail for Grandma and Grandpa way back before I can remember. I don't know. Among the things I do know are down there somewhere, though. A mini cassette, so like a handheld voice-activated tape recorder recording that my dad had made and given to me when he was alive. This may have been a message for me on the week of my wedding. It may have been a, an audio recording of part of my wedding. I don't really know. There's also a reel-to-reel -reel tape. And again, one of the things you worry about is I've made more than 100 MP3 file recordings of inappropriate conversation shows that are on some level kind of a time capsule to the future. Well, that is no good if in the future there is no way for anybody to actually play an MP3 file. And that's, of course, the risk that you take by not writing, because truthfully, pen to paper in a book that's been bound properly and well, that's going to have some lifespan to it, unless we end up in a, you know, a Nazi-style books are burning mentality, which sometimes you look at our nation and you feel like, well, that's a real risk. But even then, gathering up every book and burning it is going to be a much more labor-intensive, risky maneuver than simply finding a way to invalidate an entire technology like reel-to-reel -reel or MP3 recordings. But somewhere in the basement, I have a reel-to-reel -reel tape of things that my dad had recorded. Was this music that he thought I would love? Are these audio, audio recordings that he has made? Is this his voice telling me something from the future? I don't know. One day, I probably will find a way to take that and at least spin it into some format I can play. Uh, again, I've, I've got a tape deck. I don't know how well it functions. But if I just spun it into an audio cassette of regular size, you could put it in an old Walkman that still works and listen to it that way. So there's voices from my past that I know I haven't heard, in part because of the changes over the years in the form of technology. 
and I realize that I'm making recordings right now, that in some ways there may be that same gap. There may be that same blockade of technology that occurs. But I'm, I'm just as skeptical maybe as my father would have been. When you see reel-to-reel morph into A-track, morph into traditional cassette, morph into mini cassette, maybe on some level you still feel confidence that there's always going to be some kind of tape. Because even as tape recording technology has changed over the years, there's still tape recording technology. My dad was very well aware that me and my old friend Charlie would spend time in my room trying to keep my sisters as quiet as we possibly could because we were taping live audio. In some cases, taping an album, playing an album on a turntable by Rush or somebody and using a very old-fashioned recorder stuck underneath two speakers that were, you know, kind of joined together like like an A-frame roof of a house on top of this player to get the maximum sound possible. So long before we owned, anyway, the technology that would do all of that sound management internally, where you could just play an album and record what the needle was picking up. And if you didn't make noises that were crazy loud enough to interfere with the needle externally, then you weren't picking up any sound because there was no atmospheric gap between the player that was doing the recording and the player that was playing the album. It was all the same. So my dad knew that I had an interest in in recording and listening to things played on cassette tapes. But now the cassette tape is virtually gone. And what I've got in my basement is a set of uh, musical recordings that I don't listen to anymore. The ones I value the most, of course, I've since bought again. Did I buy them again an album? No, I probably had them originally on album. But Or if I didn't have them originally on album, I didn't backtrack to album. But whether there's albums or cassettes that I don't hear much in that format, it's likely that I've at some point in time bought a CD of them. And if I haven't bought a CD of them, I bought an MP3 of them. And if I haven't done either one of those, I still probably get to hear them from time to time in other ways like YouTube or even the Pollyanna Cowgirl Records podcast from Tony Pucci playing, you know, on occasion, older songs in the mix, kind of closing the show here in recent months with an oldie. So my dad knew there were tapes. He figured I'd always have them. He gave me some. And sadly, I haven't heard them. That kind of matters in a way. Partly it matters because... I want to make sure that my kids, my son, and to make this example really clean and clear, have things that I've shared that they can hear if they want to and that they can ignore if they want to. But the other thing is this concept of Papa talk to me. If there was something I needed to hear that I didn't hear because I didn't take the time to listen, that's as profoundly heartbreaking as the ending to perhaps my favorite Swedish film, Ingmar Bergman's Through a Glass Darkly. My son looked me in the eyes the other day and asked, Pa, when's this war going to be over? I answered him that one day his children and his children's children will look back and know that four warriors stood and fought and answered geeky trivia so that children everywhere could be free. The names of those heroes fresh on their minds, their tongues and their tattoos, Omar from Costa Rica, Roe from Washington, and of course their fearless leader, Commander Jason. I'm Kevin from Canada, and this is Atomic Trivia War 9000. ATW9K. Cue the scene. Father, staring out the window, as his daughter, who's schizophrenic, and son-in-law have been helicoptered away off the island toward a mental hospital where his daughter is likely to be committed for the rest of her life after having a serious nervous breakdown that included sexually molesting her younger brother, a teenager, say 16 years old. Son, 
enters the room to speak to his father. I'm scared, Papa. When I sat holding Karen down in the wreck, reality burst open. Do you understand what I mean? Yes, I understand. Reality burst open, and I tumbled out. It's like in a dream. Anything can happen. Anything. I know. I can't live in this new world. Yes, you can. But you must have something to hold on to. What would that be? A god? Give me some proof of god. You can't. Yes, I can. But you have to listen carefully. Yeah, I need to listen. I can only give you a hint of my own hope. It's knowing that love exists for real in the human world. A special kind of love, I suppose? All kinds, son. The highest and the lowest. The most absurd and the most sublime. All kinds of love. The longing for love? Longing and denial. Trust and distrust. So, love is the proof. I don't know if love is the proof of God's existence, or if love is God himself. For you, love and God are the same? That thought helps me in my emptiness and my dirty despair. Tell me more, Papa. Suddenly, the emptiness turns into abundance, and despair into life. It's like a reprieve, son, from a death sentence. Papa, if, if it is as you say, then Karen is surrounded by God since we love her. Yes. Can that help her? I believe so. Would you mind if I go for a run? Off you go. I'll make dinner. See you in, see you in an hour. Father exits, leaving the son standing alone and turning toward the camera. Papa, talk to me. Papa talked to me. Papa talked to me. These are the words of Ingmar Bergman in one of the most profound scripts he wrote. In fact, of a trilogy of films, which I think is perhaps the finest thematic trilogy in world cinema history, the Faith Trilogy, Through a Glass Darkly, Winter Light, and The Silence. And it would be easy at this point in time for me to cite Ingmar Bergman as a different drummer. I've been wrestling with it, as a matter of fact, unsure which way to go, and perhaps cheating a little bit, because if I don't pick him as a different drummer this time, I can say more if I cite him again in the future. I can focus this conversation, by and large, directly on Through a Glass Darkly, as a matter of fact, and do so giving myself a little bit more freedom to mention him again at another time. Oddly, I didn't give myself this freedom with my all-time favorite director, Luis Buñuel, but one of the commonalities I see between Bergman, Buñuel, Truffaut, and others is how often films of this era would end with a principal character staring into the camera, um, either finding solace where there isn't much to be found, or seeking answers where the audience has none to offer, and this is one of them. Our different drummer this week, though, is not Bergman, 
the screenplay writer, the play director, the film director, and it's not even one of the two actors who appeared in the original version of this of this clip. It's the actress about whom they're speaking the whole time. This entire conversation is trying to come to terms with the damage that the character Karen did to herself and to the other people in the story and to the damage that they had in turn done to her. And so when the conversation ends with Papa talk to me, there's an irony there that at no point in this screenplay has this story really been about the younger brother. No, this story is about Karen. And that character brought to life and one of the more impressive performances in the history of cinema by our different drummer, Harriet Anderson. You see, Bergman, unlike Bunuel, not necessarily principally a visual director or a written word on the page director. He wrote his own screenplays, but maybe more than a lot of his contemporaries, he understood that there was a certain value in the high quality of acting and he put a premium on it himself. A lot of the movies, in fact, that I would cite Harry and Anderson for, she was so central to the success of the film that it's hard to imagine that the films would be successful if anyone else played those roles. She absolutely owns the part of Monica in her first film with Bergman, Summer with Monica. And she's a crucial element in the cries behind the movie Cries and Whispers, which was one of the you know films that got a lot of acclaim for Bergman and really for world cinema at the Academy Awards outside of just the foreign film Oscar category. Anderson would appear as well later in Fanny and Alexander in a smaller part. So if I were to line up a handful of my favorite films by Bergman, she appears in more than half of them in Through a Glass Darkly, Summer with Monica, and Fanny and Alexander, appearing in fact in films over the course of three decades. Her first role being in the early to mid part of the 1950s through a glass darkly being released in 1964 and you know, early 80s, late 70s, the time frame for Fanny and Alexander. So really a career spanning relationship where she wasn't exclusively part of what you might call Bergman's troupe of performers, but she was a regular. And at times this one in particular, Bergman would call her up because he had a part that really in his mind only she could play. So this is a actor's director with a long track record of valuing and esteeming the acting profession higher than he ever acknowledged, truth be known, and picking from time to time certain parts that really could only be played by certain people. That's truly high praise. The other praise that I will offer for Anderson is that I think that if you were to line her up in the pantheon of the actors and actresses of her time, you would not immediately think of her as a performer for reasons that you might traditionally describe as beauty, either from a sexual kind of point of view, although she often played erotic characters, or even just from a physical, let's make a statue of this person and put her in the Louvre point of view. I mean, for me, if I was going to watch a movie made in this era, because I wanted to see more, however you might define the term more, of a particular actress, you know, my mind would drift off to people like Anita Ekberg or Sophia Loren or even Marilyn Monroe long before you got to Harriet Anderson. And yet Anderson rarely played a part where the character wasn't, on some level, incredibly physically beautiful. Even if her character was deeply flawed or disturbed or unattractive for other reasons, she nevertheless was able to infuse a word that I can only describe as beauty, because it wasn't necessarily a sexuality thing, into her part. 
And this for somebody who I think, if walking down the street, having a conversation with some of the other actresses I mentioned, might be the last person that you'd think of to put on the cover of a magazine. So truly, just from performance alone, digging down into the art and craft of acting and transforming herself into something on screen that had an attractiveness, for want of a better word, that you would not see if you were, frankly, a reporter sitting in a room conducting an interview. Speaking of a reporter sitting in a room conducting an interview, the biographical material I'd like to cover for Anderson is not going to come from the places I might typically look. I'm not going to use Wikipedia or IMDb or allmovie.com. Instead, I'm going to refer to a conversation published on SFGate, uh, part of the San Francisco Chronicle, from an interview written by Chronicle movie critic Mark LaSalle on October 17, 2008, a sit-down chat with Anderson. Here are pieces and parts of the story that was written around that interview. At the time, uh, Harriet Anderson was 76 years old. She's now in her early 80s. Anderson is one of the greats of world cinema part of a small group of actresses who appeared regularly in the films of Ingmar Bergman. Dark-haired and of average height, she was not the prototypical, tall, reserved, Scandinavian actress, but someone impulsive and physical, full of life force and overt sexual energy. She became famous throughout Europe at 20 years old as the star of Summer with Monica, 1953, about a sexually free teenage girl, and her performances as the vibrant but mentally disturbed heroine of Through a Glass Darkly and the dying sister in Cries and Whispers are classics. From the interview, LaSalle asks her, How did you come to make Monica? And is it true that Ingmar Bergman discovered you when you were operating an elevator in Stockholm? In an elevator, she answered. Ha, that's a new one for me. No, I did operate an elevator, but that was when I was 14 and a half. Ingmar did not discover me. I was discovered in 1949 in theater school. Before Monica, I had many small parts. Most of them were a little like Monica. I looked that way. I looked like a bad girl. But I wasn't a bad girl, really. I was a very nice little girl until I found out what life was. I was afraid to audition, to audition for Monica, because we had heard so much about Ingmar, that he was an angry man and a demon and that he hated actors, all lies. So I went out and we made the test. We started and there was on the floor a basin with water in it, standing on the floor, and when I was running around and so on, I put my foot into it. And for the millionth part of a second, I thought, shall I stop? But I didn't. I just kicked it away. Afterwards, Ingmar told me, that's why you got the part. She lived with Ingmar Bergman for a while during uh, one, of his, one of the divorces from his wife and um, talked about their relationship in some detail. But it was clear that he picked her as an actress and picked her for the part perhaps well before that relationship, uh, the personal relationship between them, started up. LaSalle asks her, Your death scene in Cries and Whispers is one of the most harrowing on film. How did it come about? Her answer, That's the death of my father. He was very, very sick. He died in 56 or 57. He had stomach cancer. He was lying in the hospital, and it was very hot that summer. I was there for one and a half days, and he's the only person I ever, I've ever seen die. And they were very strict with the morphine in those days. So, you know, I was sitting there, and he was sleeping. And then suddenly he would start with this labored and gasping breathing. Then, very quietly, he was dead. After all that, he died like she does. Death is coming so quick sometimes. So I called the nurse. I said, I think he's dead. And you know what she did? 
They didn't have all the machines and monitors in those days. She came back with a mirror. That moment of staring death face to face came between her performance, her groundbreaking performance in Monica and the making of Through a Glass Darkly. Speaking of how that part came to her, she said, I'd lived in, I'd moved to the south of Sweden. I was married down there. I was sitting on a farm and I really was kind of sad. And then Ingmar called me and said, I'm going to send you a script. I read the script and I called him back and said, Ingmar, it's a fantastic script, but I can't do it. Why? Because it's too difficult for me. Don't talk nonsense, he said, not using the word nonsense. Basically, one of these instances of a director writing a part for a specific actress and not taking no for an answer. This happened at least twice in the relationship between Bergman and Anderson, and it shows on the screen. I don't believe that there are very many parts in cinema history that can measure up to or significantly exceed the performance as Karen in Through a Glass Darkly. And I've mentioned this before in previous inappropriate conversations, in fact. I wonder whether Through a Glass Darkly would be a better film had it been made in a period of time where some of the moments could have been more explicit. Is the film more powerful because it's completely understated? about what the siblings were doing when she was having her episode in the shipwreck? Or would it have been worse if that was somehow more clear? It was clear enough through the performances, just through the looks on the faces of these two actors alone. And a lot of that has to do with the power of Anderson's performance. Hi, everybody. Rich here. You know, one of the best things about Simply Syndicated is the great community of listeners we've got and all of the things you guys do to help us out. Something you could do that helps us spread the word about our shows is to let people know that you're listening on Facebook and Twitter. All our episodes have sharing buttons on them so you can tell your friends about us with just a few clicks of the mouse. Just visit our website at simplysyndicated.com and click the sharing buttons to help spread the word. I saw Through a Glass Darkly for the first time with my father. In fact, I saw Summer with Monica with Dad in the room part of the time, and we actually intentionally sat and watched Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half together. I don't know what he must have thought. There was nothing in our family history that would have led him to believe that one of his children would become such a strong enthusiast of international cinema, and least of all, the one that spoke the least foreign language. It wasn't as if I was going to master enough Swedish or French or Spanish, to be able to encounter these movies by people like Bergman and Bunuel as a, you know, in a first person sort of a way, I was always going to be a subtitle reader. And I don't know whether he enjoyed them. Uh, he was a big fan of comedies. He was perhaps the biggest fan of Peter Sellers that I have ever known, certainly from the perspective of the uh, Inspector Clouseau character in the Pink Panther films. But he certainly had a lot of time, either for me or for these movies. And I wonder, and I'm unfortunately left to wonder, if he got as much out of them as I did. I'll never know, because Papa never spoke to me about it. Speaking of English language, uh, my son took a few years of German in high school, and my daughter took a few years of Spanish. We are now living in an era where 
learning a foreign language in high school is typically not optional. It's, it'd be a surprise to me if there were very many school districts in the country that didn't have that as a requirement. It's certainly something that college admission people look for as well. And I remember one time my son and daughter arguing with each other over their grades because I think my daughter perhaps had a slightly higher GPA as the result of the way they calculate their grade point averages. But she had a B in English, and uh, he was you know kind of needling her about the fact that of all the things she didn't get an A grade in, the one she didn't get an A grade in was the language that she speaks. He, of course, had an A in English, or he wouldn't have brought it up, but he had a B on his report card in German. And his retort back to uh, all of us, really, when we challenged on why he was bothering his sister so much over the grade that she got versus the grade that he got, is he basically just said, hey, at least I didn't get a B in the language I'm supposed to speak. English is her primary language. I don't know when my kids will stop fighting. I'm assuming that there's going to be a time in adulthood because that tends to be what you see happen. And I hope that, you know, in some ways, the parenting style that I've used hasn't done anything to you know, force the issue in the wrong direction because the parents have that kind of influence, at least in the early years, or at the very least, my parents did. And in some ways, I think that for mothers and daughters and for fathers and sons, it's just a little bit more tricky because you've got that historic thing you always hear about in terms of mothers and daughters fighting like cats and dogs and saying much more hateful things toward each other from the teenager to the parent perspective than you would typically see directed from daughter to father. And I'm you know, assuming that the same thing is true for fathers and sons. What I worry about more than anything else is the silence. If you'd like to add some dialogue to this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com, at least for now. I'm still evaluating what's going to happen as MSN makes a transition from Hotmail to Outlook. I can always, of course, be reached at Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. Uh, it's listed as a cause on Facebook or on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. And the website, www.inappropriateconversations.org, has show notes with comments enabled. Thanks for listening.